Hello and welcome to the podcast for the November 2012 issue of The Lancet Oncology. I'm Richard Lane and this month I'm delighted to be joined once again by Lan Lan Smith from TLO. We should say it's a slightly different podcast this month. Part of the November issue is summing up the outcomes of consensus meeting held earlier in the year and this specifically concerns oncology care management in the Asia region. We have done this sort of thing before. Give us a bit of context. These are Asian-specific guidelines that have come about, as you say, from consensus meetings from the Asian Oncology Summit that was held this year in Singapore. We have done similar consensus guidelines before. In 2009, we published six guidelines, including topics on breast cancer, non-small cell lung cancer, and head and neck cancer. The reason that we think it's important to have Asian-specific guidelines is that it's a very diverse region and there's not a one-size-fit-all solution for this area. There's many different cultures and resource levels throughout the region, which is why it's important to give a focus on this particular area of the world. There are three topics, Lan Lan, that we've we've focused on for the podcast. Do you want to just uh, quickly mention those? Yes, we have one on palliative care, another on kidney cancer, and the final one is on colorectal cancer. Thanks, Lan Lan. And let's start with an interview I did a couple of weeks ago. And this is Professor Sheila Payne. And she's talking specifically about guidelines for palliative care in the oncology setting in the Asia region. I'm Professor Sheila Payne, and I'm the director of the International Observatory on End-of-Life Care based at Lancaster University in the UK. I was invited to um, talk about uh, supportive palliative and end-of-life care for patients with cancer in Asia at the Asian Oncology Summit in 2012. And the reason I think I was invited is because within the International Observatory on End-of-Life Care, we are very interested in global perspectives and global comparisons on uh, supportive and palliative and end-of-life care. Asia is a huge area of the world and there is great diversity in the uh, socio-economic status of countries, both accounting for very wealthy parts and, and regions, but also accounting for very poor countries. And the burden of cancer is high with over 4 million new cases of cancer diagnosed in uh, Asia each year. And that accounts for 39% of all new cases worldwide. Moreover, many of the people who are diagnosed are diagnosed at a late stage of disease where supportive, palliative and end of life are really the only effective clinical options for them. I think one of the the key messages that I and my co-authors are trying to get over in this paper is that we need to be mindful of a number of different issues when we think about delivering palliative and end of life care in uh, Asia. There are parts of Asia for example, Singapore and, and Hong Kong, where it would be very similar to the very best in Western medicine and people who are sufficiently wealthy, but also large segments of the population would be able to access very good, high-quality uh, cancer care. There are other parts of Asia where that is just not the case. For example, in parts like Cambodia, in Myanmar, formerly called Burma, many of the people there would have very little access to care. The other diversity that we need to be conscious of is that Western models of palliative and end-of-life care may not be um, so applicable because we need to take account of different cultural traditions 
and religions. For example, some parts of Asia would have a Buddhist tradition, some parts Muslim. Many of the oncology and particularly palliative and hospice services were started by people from a, a Christian perspective. And access to affordable medicines is obviously critical. Can you comment on that? Yes, we are very conscious of the need to advocate at governmental level that people have access to appropriate medication, particularly pain medication. There shouldn't be undue barriers to the prescription or the availability of suitable analgesics. We are particularly conscious that affordability is a real problem for many of the very poorest countries in Asia. We're talking predominantly about morphine, ideally oral morphine. Now, there are many historical reasons. For example, the opioid wars have a history in China, which means that governments are hesitant at giving people access to opioids. We've advocated that suitable analgesics are available and that we shouldn't be necessarily encouraging pharmaceutical companies to produce the most expensive drugs, but they should be cheap, available drugs, particularly oral morphine. Training for the multidisciplinary team is really important. We're aware that there is basic training available in many countries with enhanced or advanced training available in, for example, Japan, Singapore, and some other areas. And we think that this is a way forward to help develop and improve palliative and end-of-life care for all cancer patients. Next, Richard, we're going to hear from Dr. Edmund Chung from Singapore talking on the topic of kidney cancer. In kidney cancer, as we all know, globally there's been an increase in incidence uh, and mortality of kidney cancer. Pretty much the same in Asia. However, there is a vast difference in terms of the incidence rates uh, of kidney cancer in Asia. One of the reasons is because there's a diverse epidemiology, not so much in the biology of the disease, but rather in terms of the socioeconomic situation as well as the availability of resources for diagnosis. So there are countries that are more developed and of course have higher risk factors such as uh, the population have uh, increased obesity, cigarette smoking, hypertension, and of course with increased affluence there's uh, more modalities for diagnosis. So there is also an increased rate in terms of the incidental detection of renal tumors due to imaging done for other reasons. Whilst in the more not so developed regions or countries, the presentations tends to be more advanced for kidney cancers because they are less likely to be detected early or incidentally. How manageable is kidney cancer if it's presenting late? Is it one of the more difficult ones to manage if the presentation is late? Even if it presents late, although there is a certain mortality rate, there has been a lot of advances in the recent years. I would say that there has been advances in terms of the use of uh, surgery at even advanced metastatic cancer, where there has been more role seen in terms of cytoreductive nephrectomy, having some form of survival benefit shown even in selected metastatic uh, renal cell cancer. During the recent years, there's been a number of targeted therapy agents that has uh, come up, and these have also impacted a lot on the management of advanced uh, renal cell cancer. So there has been more options now, and certainly uh, that do impact on the, the mortality as well as the outcome of these cancers, even when they're advanced.
And returning to the Asia Oncology Summit, the meeting that took place uh, earlier in the year, what do you think are the key recommendations coming out of that meeting that will influence the management of kidney cancer in the Asia region? Well, I think one of the most important things that happened in the Asian Oncology Summit is that there was a new angle that many have not considered when they look, looked at guidelines. One of the most important things that uh, we discussed was about resource level, the management according to resource availability. In many times, we looked at evidence-based practice, but however, there's also issues with the availability of healthcare resource in terms of the availability of the surgical expertise, whether there's availability of drugs, in terms of the infrastructure. Because there's so much variability in Asia and diversity, a number of challenges, you know, include the infrastructure and healthcare financing differences. Even within the same country, there is a difference in terms of the resource availability. Such guidelines that has an emphasis on resource availability becomes all the more important. And it's not just the evidence-based medicine, but we also have to look into the availability of resource, which help to guide our, the management for our patients. And now let's hear from Dr. Gilberto de Lima Lopez on the topic of colorectal cancer in the Asian region. Colon cancer affects 1.23 million people worldwide, causing approximately 600,000 deaths every year. The third most common malignant disease in men and the second in women. In Asia, as this is a very heterogeneous region, we see incidents ranging from less than 10 cases per 100,000 in countries such as Cambodia and Vietnam to up to 30 to 60 cases per 100,000 in Japan, Singapore, and Hong Kong. And these numbers are quite similar to what we see in the U.S. and Western Europe. The incidence has also more than doubled over the past few decades, and the mortality continues to rise substantially. As there are large disparities in outcomes in the region, for instance, the mortality rate can be as high as 75% in Indonesia and as low as 30% in Singapore, it is clear that we can improve in the management of the disease in Asia. The rapid industrialization and urbanization that the region is seeing seems to be the major risk factor. People tend to change their diets from more vegetable-based to more meat-based and fat-based foods, and that increases the incidence of colorectal cancer with urbanization. And what about the management of colon cancer in Asia? How does that vary? What is possible in the Asia region? So the interesting thing about these consensus guidelines is that due to large differences in resource levels in different countries within the Asian region, it is clear that we had to establish guidelines that would be resource-specific and would help countries with low resources and high resources decide what is possible in terms of management of colorectal cancer in their own practices. And that's what we did in these guidelines. Using cost-effectiveness in addition to clinical data available in the literature and with the experience that the authors had in their own countries and regions, we established guidelines for several resource levels, including basic, limited, enhanced, and maximum, which are discussed in detail at the paper. The main example is in the management of metastatic disease, where the ability to pay for targeted agents is quite different in low-income and high-income countries. As such, for basic resources and for basic resources and limited resources, we would suggest treatment with fluorouracil as the main stain of, stain of um, palliative chemotherapy, while in countries with high income, the addition of further chemotherapy and targeted agents such as oxaliplatin, lunatic, and bevacizumab and cetuximab becomes important. The main difference between countries with higher level resources and lower level resources in terms of surgery 
is the availability of laparoscopic procedures or not. In countries with basic and limited resources, open classic surgical oncologist procedures are appropriate, and in high-income countries, we also have the option of laparoscopic approaches. The main conclusion is that colon cancer is increasingly common in the region, and it is one of the few cancers for which there are available options for the early detection, prevention, and ad adequate treatment. So we hope that these guidelines will help countries establish and implement resource-specific procedures that can help control the disease and improve survival in the region. Many thanks to all the authors who took their time to contribute to this extended special Asian Oncology podcast. And Lan Lan, that's not all, because of course, as ever, what's happening next year? Plans afoot for, for more of this sort of thing? Yes, we hope to see everyone at the upcoming Asian Oncology Summit in Bangkok, Thailand, from March 22nd to 24th, 2013. We'll see you next month.